Well, for the last several weeks, we have been um, engrossed, really, in this sermon that Jesus, the Son of God, preached to people that had gathered around him, some disciples, some who were really curious and interested in this, this miracle worker, this man that speaks with such authority. And so here he is on the side of a mountain, and here are just a crowd of people that have surrounded him, and he has their attention for sure. And he's talking to them about the kingdom of heaven while he is on earth on the side of the mountain. And he's talking to them about the things of heaven and really about discipleship, the message, and then how you live out the message. And he's talking about very, very important topics of discipleship. And in essence, he is saying that when you become a child of God, when you embrace the king and his kingdom, it doesn't just change you a little bit. But it's a radical change that begins from the inside and works its way out. And it can be so radical that not only will it change your life, but it has the effect to change those around you in your sphere of influence. In fact, it has the, the, the potential to really change not just a, a person or a family, but a whole society, a whole culture. And in fact, that would be the king's desire that we would embrace his teaching to the extent that it changes not just us but the world for the glory of God. Countercultural. But this is how the people of the kingdom live. Changed lives, changed thoughts, changed behaviors. Everything is brought under the submission of the king. In this passage he is talking about he has been talking about prayer and hypocrisy and Jesus's style of teaching sometimes is to teach you a wrong way to do things and then teach you the right way to do it even point out bad examples and so he's been talking about uh, the bad example of hypocrisy in spiritual disciplines he's talked about hypocrisy in how you give make a show out of it to get the reward of man he's talking about Hypocrisy in how you pray. And then he talks about hypocrisy in how you fast. I mean, there's even a hypocritical way of fasting. A, as something is so sacrificial as fasting and, and self-denying, we can even do that in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. And so he draws our attention to that. I'm not going to give a teaching on that passage this morning. I'm going to um, skip it. Because there are actually better opportunities to do a teaching on fasting. More passages will come up, in other words, that lend a hand to digging a little deeper into that. This is really just 16 through 18 in chapter 6. It's really just more teaching about hypocrisy and the fasting is just another example of how that's done. So I'm not going to land on that. We're going to move on. However, I just will point out that Jesus does say in those um, verses... When you fast. And that's always so convicting when I read that. Not if you fast or if you feel like it or if you decide. But he's speaking to this big crowd and he's saying when you fast. In other words, surely you will. And there are times and seasons that you will fast because that's what the people of God do. And so the challenge there is, you know, is that is fasting incorporated into our regular routine of spiritual disciplines, of spiritual growth? Is it something that that we take serious? Is it a tool? Is it a, a method? 
Is it a, a heart's desire that we have embraced as part of our lives as the people of God? When you fast. So just that in and of itself is challenging. But as we move on to verses 19, uh, I think through 34, he's going to now bring up some other very important topics that we wrestle with in life. Things that are unavoidable. We're going to talk about wealth, earthly possessions, and then the potential effects that our hearts can have depending on our attitude about wealth and possessions. They can be an incredible blessing to us or they can twist our hearts all up and cause tremendous anxiety. Perhaps some of you walked in here this morning with tremendous anxiety on your hearts and in some way it's tied to this this love maybe or this deep concern for what we own, what we have and what we don't have. Provision very powerful passage. I'm going to read 19 through 34, and that will conclude chapter 6 this morning. So there's three chapters in this sermon. We'll be two-thirds complete after this morning. So here is Jesus speaking these words on the side of that mountain. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than that? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. A lot of words. A lot of words. What's the bottom line of all these words? What is Jesus really saying? What's the heart of the passage? But this. If our hearts fail to treasure the right things, we will be enslaved to all kinds of anxieties. The thing that we treasure the most is the thing that we're going to serve. It's the thing we're going to go after. If we go after the wrong thing, if we treasure the wrong thing, we will suffer for it. It will open the door to all kinds of troubles, many unforeseen. If we treasure God and we use our money to serve Him, then we will build up beautiful, heavenly treasures. Eternal treasures. If we treasure money and use it to serve self, we will be enslaved to it and it will just eat away and eat away and eat away and eat away at us and deplete us from the blessings of God. So he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are our hearts this morning? Where is our treasure? What are we investing in predominantly? As we live our lives. I'm always amazed at how Jesus can take incredibly profound and complex topics that could be hashed out and argued for years by philosophers and intellectuals. And just somehow he just takes these words of truth and he just he skillfully puts them in our hearts and in our minds in a way that you just have to kind of know, if you're going to take his word serious, know where you stand. It's like you're, you're either doing this or you're either doing that. Because we don't like those areas and times of really being put on the spot where, hey, Jesus and God says, I can actually tell where your heart is. I can tell how you're living based on this. And that's what he does in this passage. He doesn't leave room for middle ground. It's this or this, just serve one or the other. We need to hear that. It's a kind thing, but it's a painful thing. Where are our hearts this morning? What are we devoted to this morning? That's what we want to think about as we submit ourselves to God's word. And may God be exalted and the saints edified and the lost evangelized this morning as we submit ourselves to the holy word of God. There's two major topics in this passage. Worldly possessions or money. And uh, really anxiety. Yes, the world says, as I think about this passage, what is, what the, what's the gospel? What's the message of the world regarding money? Or at least our culture. Probably maybe should put it that way. Probably the world, but at least in our culture, what's the gospel message? The gospel message about money and earthly possessions is if you have more money, your problems will be gone. In other words, 
the gospel of the world and unfortunately false teaching within Christendom like prosperity gospel. Basically, the message is, listen, the solution to your problems is more money. You get more money, the more money you have, the less problems you have. And yet here is Jesus preaching a gospel, a message from heaven that is this huge warning. This this message that actually, when it's put in its proper perspective, the source of many of your problems is money. Two things are antithetical. What do we do with this? Where is Jesus coming from? Well, first, we will look at the question, well, what's so powerful about money? Why do we have to really, really be careful with it? Why is it so dangerous? How does the the power lie in it? Well, to understand that, I think, first we've got to understand this little mini-sermon or a little mini-passage about um, the eye and light and, and lamps is puzzling. But it, it really opens our eyes to where Jesus is coming from. And why? Yes, money. The, the, the love of the desire for earthly possessions, though we need them and cannot live without them, is extremely or can be very dangerous. So he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? What is this great darkness? He's putting all this emphasis on. Well, as you know, the way our bodies were designed by God is that these are the organs or this is the organ that is used to see. And the way that we are able to see God's creation and see each other is light enters into the the eye and enables us to get a proper reflection of what's really there. So we work with the light. And if our eyes are working, we have to have the light. And if we don't have the light and if our eyes are closed, life gets difficult. Because if my eyes are closed and I I have to feel my way through life, so I don't run into the pulpit or bang my head on the microphone or wonder where is the end of the stage because I'm living in darkness. And I could hurt myself really just trying to use the restroom. I could trip into people. I could flip over chairs. Somebody could be mean to me and put things in my way. It's hard when light doesn't enter in. But that's what happens. You stumble. You fall, you stumble, and you fall. Very, very difficult. Full of anxiety. I mean, can you imagine wondering every step? Is this going to be solid under my feet? Or is this going to be slippery? Or is there nothing there? Just yesterday, I had this really, really tough bolt I was trying to get off on some farm equipment. And I had my big pipe wrench on it, and it was really, really stuck and so I, my, all my body weight didn't move it, so I had to put both feet on it and dance on it and then sometimes just take one foot and bang on it. And so I went to bang on the wrench and it took a bad bounce and there was nothing there. So I over, it just kicked into the air and overextended my knee. 
It's a, when there's nothing under you, it's, a, it's not a good feeling. Then I was on a little platform doing a little work, and I had my walkboard on top of the ladder, so it's only about a six-inch. Well, actually, it's about a four-inch drop, four-inch difference. And I'm doing some work on the ceiling, so I'm just kind of following the walkboard, and all of a sudden, uh-oh, just a four-inch difference. Now, my foot hit, and I was okay, but I thought I was gone. I thought I fell off the side of a mountain. Now, here's the thing. If your eyes aren't working it really doesn't matter how much light is available to you. I mean, you could say, oh, poor pastor, he can't see a thing. Let's put spotlights everywhere. Put, put high beams everywhere and light this place up. But it will not do me any good if my eyes are not working. All I'm going to see is darkness. And how great is the darkness when the light does not get in? And the whole body's dark. In other words, no matter how well my hands and my feet and my knees and my arms and all these, my mouth won't stop for about another 45 minutes. No matter how good these things are working, they do not help me with this. So we are talking about something very serious here. What's the connection between light and dark and, and money? Well, really what Jesus is saying is we can love money and possessions and earthly things so much that it blinds us, just blinds us. It blinds us to very important things. It can affect our relationships. It can affect how we interact with everything in the world. It can affect our spiritual lives. It can affect how we worship. It's a huge thing to think about, and it, and, and it can have this power over us that we're not even aware of because we're blind to it. In Luke's gospel, he gives a similar teaching, and he uses a lot of the same words here in Matthew, but he says more about it. And in Luke's gospel, it's, um, in chapter 12, he talks about, you know, that guy who's got uh, crops and he builds more barns so that he can be even safer and more secure. You know, one's nice to have it full, but I'm going to build another and fill it and build another and fill it. And, and then, you know, he thinks he's set and he dies the next day. And it wasn't a good move, really. Jesus is using this. But before he tells that parable, Jesus says this in Luke 12:15. He said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus, there's so many things in life that are so dangerous. And I like the way Jesus elevates the importance of these things where he says, beware. Watch out for this. This is a big pit that many people fall into. This is not the small little thing. This is a huge era that affects everything. So we got to watch it. Why do we have to be so careful about it? Well, because greed and covetousness hides itself really well in our hearts. It's not one of those sins that are just so blatant. You know, like 
you commit adultery and you get caught, everybody knows about it. It's just right out there. It's very obvious. Or catch me in a lie. Look, here's what you told me. But look, here's the truth. I got evidence. I got proof. You're busted. But with greed and covetousness and an improper love for money, it's, it's more elusive. It's hard. Hides behind things in our hearts. So if a topic comes up, somebody preaches about it like this morning. We're thinking about our possessions, obviously. We read this. Thinking about our cars that we drive. We're thinking about our mortgage, our money, how much money we have in the bank, what we don't have. And it comes up and, and so we're probably thinking to ourselves, am I a greedy person? Do I use my money? Do I have too many things? Am I blind? Usually what we do is we look up. We think about people who have things. We compare ourselves to them. We say, well, they have more than we do. Now, I would consider you excessive and you excessive. Uncle Fernando, now that's extravagant. But I think, um, I think I'm good. This message doesn't really apply to me, but I'm going I'm to be, um, I'm going to listen politely and I'm going to, I am going to be careful. I'm going to be on guard. What we do is we take a quick look up the food chain. We compare ourselves to others that have more than we do or a bigger weakness than we do in this area. And then obviously we have to conclude, I'm safe. But I'm not like that person. I don't drive around in things like that. Man. Sin, it's blinding, this kind of sin. It hides. It's really hard to put a finger on it. And it could be innocent. We don't even know it. It might even be obvious to others. And least obvious to us. It's a sin of the eye. It's dark. So how do we even know if we have it? I think uh, two obvious ways are how do we make our money? How do we go about providing for ourselves? Getting the things that we think we need. And then the other Obvious way might be to say, well, once we have it, how are we spending it? How are we using it? So you think about how you make it, of course, mostly for adults, maybe even kids that get a little bit of allowance. What do you do with your little bit of allowance? Does God care about that? 25 cents for washing the dishes or keeping my room clean. Does God even care about that and how I spend my money? So we... We make our money sometimes. You think about, again, a teaching, a cultural teaching. It's a, it's a flavor. There's an expectation out there that what you're going to do is you're going to go for the money every time in your jobs. You, you really be kind of looked down upon if, if you have an opportunity to make more money and you don't take it because obviously money's the answer to everything. So we have a lot of people that take jobs, not because they're great at it, it's their skill, it's what they got their degree in, not because it's what they feel most fulfilled in, but because, hey, you know, I was making this here, but look at this offer. It's okay if I got to travel. What, what drives us? What's our motivation between how we, provide, how we provide for ourselves or our families? 
Isn't it interesting that so many people and the, the, the thought is that the more money is always the answer. You have people working jobs that are based on this principle that really are unethical. But I'm not going to go there. A lot of these big companies that make a lot, a lot of money op- don't operate all above board. Insurance companies and drug manufacturers. Yeah, sometimes it's about the money and things are hidden. Why do you think that they are always under some kind of litigation? Not all blameless and people work for these companies and say, well, yeah, maybe, that, maybe this chemical did harm people over here or whatever, but I've just come here to do my job. It's amazing what we'll do for the love of money and how we'll sacrifice our love and sometimes our lives are... are Or ethics. And then secondly, how do we spend the money we have? How do we use it? How do we divvy it out? What envelope do we put it in? What's it go towards? So we might ask ourselves questions like, do, yeah, I want it, but do I really, really need a new truck? And that is the finest truck I've seen. They finally came out with a design that has everything. But do I really need it or that car? Do I really need that house that has everything in it that I would ever want? I'd be set for life if I just had that house. But do I really need that big of a mortgage? Can I afford it? Or, yeah, I can afford it, but do I really need what I just feel like I have to have? Do I have to... Do I really need to remodel my house to give it a new look? Do I really need to wear this highfalutin brand of clothes that you pay way too much money for? Do I have to present myself with this kind of expensive fashion? We start to ask ourselves questions about our finances. And uh, somehow, amazingly, A lot of us ask ourselves these questions and we walk away not guilty. Not guilty. You know, I think I'm right here. Not too extravagant. Somehow we just all fit right into the not sinner, not guilty category because we look up. We see people that are too extravagant. I mean, I can't believe that you would spend that much money on just a pair of pants that I could make a mortgage payment on, and you're working in them. I'd be scared to wear them. Or you wear a brand name thing. It, you know, they make the same thing with a different name on it. You pay $10 for it, but you're going to pay 110 for it. We can look up at people that spend too much. But when we only look up in the bracket of materialism, then we never find ourselves guilty of materialism. Materialism is the it's a perspective, it's a life attitude, a philosophy that material possessions and, and comforts are superior to or more important than spiritual values and principles. That's, so that's what drives me. What I can get and the comfort it brings me as opposed to but what's really spiritually right and spiritually healthy. One thing I really like about 
rural America. And this, this church family is that I'm thinking that we don't quite struggle with a lot of these things like other people do. Um, or maybe perhaps not to the degree, you know, Silicon Valley and Manhattan. There's a lot of materialism and there's a lot of pressure to conform to materialism. And I think here, not so much. It's always there, but not so much. I mean, you can drive an old beat-up pickup, pull into the church parking lot, and that's all right. Nobody's going to judge you for it. And you can drive a, a nicer vehicle, and hopefully nobody will judge you for it. Hopefully. But I think we're pretty down to earth, and I appreciate that about you guys. I really do. But it's more than, this teaching is more than just, well, how much do you spend on yourself and your comforts and walking in so that you can walk in certain circles? The other side is, how much are you spending on the kingdom of God? Where's the kingdom of God envelope in your budget? How much is in it? How much is left? Do we, do we ever ask ourselves seriously? We ask ourselves seriously, man, can I, can, is there any way I can afford it? I, this, I want it so much. How often do we ask ourselves, is there any way I can afford to give God more? Let's sit down and take a serious look at our finances and see if we can squeak out something for God. Instead of, let's take a serious look at our finances and see if I can squeak more out for me. How often do we do that? What is our perspective about why we have what we have? Then we got, can, can I give more to, to my dear church family? Would it help? Can I give more to my dear friend on the mission field? Can I... Give more towards Christian education or the college or that Christian school or this ministry or the poor. We're not for a lack of needs. But how often do we actually take the time to even strategize? Strategize to give more to God and invest more in that which will not be stolen. Malls won't eat it. Timothy Keller tells this fascinating story about a man named Robert Craig, a businessman. He belonged to the uh, Congregational Church of Boston in the year 1635. And Robert Craig underwent church discipline. He wasn't excommunicated. But the leadership came to him and said, you may not partake of the Lord's Supper because you are guilty of the sin of greed. Now, how in the world did they come up with that? They had determined that for their culture, for their time, that it was permissible for believers to charge 3 to 4% interest. No more. Any more is greed. Lo and behold, this guy who knew the rule of the church, he's charging 6% profit. And so he broke the rule. 
And he could not participate in the Lord's Supper. He got chastised because he was greedy, they said. And you look at that and you think, ah, man, that is so controlling. Where do you come up with 6%? Show that to me in the Bible. It's legalistic if I've ever heard legalism. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I feel sorry for the poor guy. So, uh, what do we do then? How do you ever know if somebody's greedy or not? It's a big thing. Jesus is talking about it. And Jesus talks about money and greed in the Bible way more than I ever say anything about it. We talk too much about it and people leave. But these elders... They decided to take God's word really seriously. And they're looking at all these. Watch out. Be careful. There's a, there's a pitfall here. Don't be greedy. It'll mess your life up and so forth. And so they're like, well, what can we do about this to help the people in our congregation? What can we do to come up with a standard? Don't we need some kind of accountability? So they got together and they said, well, I don't know about the rest of the world, but for this group of people and where we live at this time and based on economics of our day, this is reasonable and this isn't. So when we're going to put a boundary there, we're going to put a standard there and say to our people under our charge, if you go across this, that's a sign of greed. Because where is the line? Where is the standard? And that's what they did. Got to draw some kind of consensus. And that's how they knew. And that's what Robert experienced. They look at that and say, well, could we do something like that in our day? Nah, I don't think so. It's just, I think we're beyond that. It's too difficult. We come up with a percentage and scrutinize over everybody's business practices and so forth. But what's the point? point is this, who are we accountable to? Where is the boundary? Where is your standard? How do you ever know if you've crossed the line of this thing that's so grievous to the Lord and so dangerous and so blinding? How do we ever know? Don't we need some kind of accountability to it? Huh. Can you imagine? Getting together with leadership or just a, a, a real godly couple. Somebody you really respect that you know they're, they're close to God and you get together and you, and you say, can we just go over my finances? Can I just show you my books? Can you help me see if where my money is going is glorifying God? Or um, am I greedy and don't know it? Is there covetousness here? Can you imagine somebody doing that? Submitting your books, your piggy bank, to somebody else's scrutiny that you trust? Where is our accountability? Am I giving enough? Am I setting healthy boundaries here? You don't see that very often. Maybe because we don't really want that accountability. We won't, don't want to put that standard there. Maybe. But we've got to have some kind of standard, right? I mean, there, there's something in here. 
We surely can't trust ourselves to decide on our own, can we, if it's blinding? Money has the power to keep us from asking ourselves hard questions. Keeping us from seeing the obvious. Keeping us from seeing if we are investing enough in the kingdom or not. So how do we evaluate this? Is it wise for us to just take a cultural consensus? Should we just look at other people in our church to decide, am I greedy or covetous? If I am, are my investments proper? Because again, our tendency is to just look up the financial bracket and then we're safe, not guilty. When we live in a materialistic society, should we only compare ourselves to a materialistic society? Or should we look at Christendom around the globe? So if I compare myself to you or you or you or you, I might walk away and say, you know, I'm right in there. Yes. But if I compare myself to other believers around the world and, and the money they have or don't have and how they live. Then what will I find? Should I only use this place in, in the bracket? Or can I really learn something from looking at somebody down here? Who am I comparing myself to? Other nations? And if I do, can I come away and say, you know, I'm perfectly balanced. I can't squeeze out another penny for the Lord. My finances are so tight. I'm so disciplined. Can't help anybody else. Everything I have, I have to have. Every little gadget, every little tool, whether I'm using it or not, it's in my closet, I might need it. I'm covered. If the rest of the world, I don't know, pick 15 nations, bring them in here, ask them, here's how I live, here's what I have. What do you think, my brother in Christ, about my spending habits? What might we learn about ourselves? It can be so blinding and so enslaving, we don't even know it. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Man, so where my heart is, it's not so secret after all. Jesus is saying, the way you spend your money says a lot, it reveals it. It's so dangerous because so many of us look to our money for our significance because a certain amount of money enables us to walk in social circles that we want to walk in and be seen in that light. And for others, it's that safety that it brings us, a certain amount of possessions or money, offers us a tremendous amount of safety and security. And therefore, the dangerous thing about it is we are sold out on a false sense of Safety and security and significance and control. When what Jesus is saying is, guess what? You're not controlling that. It's controlling you. You got to have that 
to this degree to feel safe? You've got to have that to this degree to feel significant? Who's in control? You're not in control. You want to know about controls? Ask Job. He owed five of everything. He owned five of everything. Was he in control? One day, it's gone. You're not in control. You're not in control of your life. You're not in control of your left. Your death money can't buy you life. Money can't heal your broken marriage. Money can't bring more love and peace into your home and harmony. Uh Uh-uh. Could be gone tomorrow. Tragedy could strike today. What's really happening is money is controlling you and you're its servant. And you need to be set free if you're willing. How do you break free? What's at the heart? What's the center of our hearts? Well, we all treasure something, right? We all have that something. How do you know what it is? Well, it's that thing that you're thinking in your mind, I, I got to have this. And you kind of plan your day around it. It's one of those things you plan your day around it. You plan your life around it. If I just have this, whew, then I'm in my safe place. I'm in my comfort place. I'm in my good place if I just have this. That's what we're worshiping. That's what we're serving. I can't do without it and I can get mean if you try to take it from me. I love the example of this in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, where uh, that little ring that binds them all, the one ring that binds them all, and it's strange that whoever has possession of it, the longer you keep it, the more it seems to control you and the more obsessed you are with it. And then you just, you're precious. You're precious, you've got to have it. And you're willing to die for it, and you're willing to kill for it. You compromise everything, it becomes Well, you're precious. And you're enslaved to it. And it's changing you the whole time. The gospel would say, the way you're set free from that is you've got to change your treasure. God has to be your treasure. God's got to be what you seek, what you love. He deserves to be. He should be. But we have to appropriate that. How do you make God your treasure? Well, you see Him for who He is. You treasure Him because He treasures you. You look at what He's done for you. You look at what you deserve for your sins. And then you see how He has treasured you. You see how He has given up the luxury of His life, emptied Himself of that, became poor, suffered, died, was buried. Why? To fellowship with you. To bring your dirty, sinful self into a clean, pure, holy atmosphere. He gave himself for you. To spend time with you eternity. When we see God like that, how much he treasures us. Keller also says something to the effect of, you know, you read God's word and you find out You're infinitely more sinful than you ever imagined. But then you find that little nugget of gold in there. But God loves you more than you could ever fathom. Those two things constantly in the gospel. That's what we want to see. We feel we we see he feels that about us. He loves us. He cares for us. And that way we're, we're worth it to him. Paradoxically. And then when we see God like that. And He means that much to us. We're free from everything that would bind us. 
because we're putting, we're putting the value where it really belongs. And then the competition fades. In Him, we are significant, we are safe, we are secure. So is He our treasure, and does it show? Does the way we live show what we value most? Shiny new car, what does that say? How much do we invest in the kingdom? What does that say about our hearts? Got to set a boundary and have a standard. It needs to be according to God's word, not my neighbor, not my culture. And then lastly, and somehow rapidly, what reasons does Jesus give us not to be anxious? Because it's funny because I prepared this in advance and it ministered to me phenomenally when I looked at this passage and I'm like, man, I am anxious and, and I gave things up and it was so good. And then somewhere along the line between then and then preparing for this, reviewing this yesterday, I'm like, wow, I picked it back up again. My perspective. But there are, according to John Piper, he says, Jesus is eight reasons not to be anxious right here in this one passage. So let's. Cover them quickly. One reason in verse 25, life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Don't be anxious about your life, what you eat, what you drink, about your body, what you wear, put on. Well, why? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? See, in our materialistic society and mindset, we think that that's all there is. You don't get any better than this. We got to take care of this. And yet there's the spiritual side of things. To where to not have the physical is not the end of the world. It's okay sometimes to go without. Why? Because you have the spirit. And if you're a child of God, the spirit lives forever. The spiritual can also be nurtured. And the spirit can, can be blessed and on cloud nine, even though the body may be in want. So don't get pigeonholed into thinking that you have to react violently or desperately and protectively and obsessively. For just the things of this earth. You are more than that. Things about you that can't be stolen. You have eternal life. So whatever you don't have is not the worst thing that life can throw at you. So don't be anxious about those things. Secondly, another reason in verse 26. You're more valuable than the birds that God feeds. Are you not of more value than they? So what's the argument here, or the position here? Uh, premise one is that God is so incredibly sovereign and in control. That every time you see a bird eat a seed, that's God's provision. I mean, every time you see a bird swoop down and catch an insect in flight, that's God's provision. Or every time you see a, a, a bird pluck a worm out of the ground. That little act was God's provision. Look how good he is at providing. Now, 
Think about yourself. Think about created order and value, your worth. If he does that for a bird, what's he going to do for you? It's at how much more. We've got to see ourselves in the how much more bracket, not the animal kingdom. So there's good reason not to be anxious because of the value that God puts on us. Man, you're worth so much more to me than that. Three, anxiety accomplishes nothing. Verse 27, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And we answer, obviously, we can't add anything. But, you know, anxiety, worry, fret, it's hard work. And it really does feel like you're getting somewhere. Wow, I worked so hard today. Man, I worried and I worried. I got all my worry bases covered. What I just do? Nothing. Where did it get me? Nowhere. Even though we tell ourselves, wow, I'm... So, what we got to do is just, in that case, listen to Jesus over yourself. For the grass and the lilies that God clothes last for a day, but you're eternal. Verses 28 through 30. Again, 30 of God clothes the grass. It's alive today, gone tomorrow. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, it's that how much more. And the inference there is, and he talked about Solomon, is look, if I do this in nature, there's so much splendor, there's so much glory, I do that for a reason, but how much more am I able and willing to take care of you and clothe you and give you what you need? More than what you need. He'll take care of you. You know what we learn in those verses? In case you ever wondered. Anxiety is a trust issue. Anxiety is a trust issue. It's plain right there. You have little faith. Five, anxiety is worldly. Verse 32, the Gentiles seek after these things. They fret about these things. They, they don't have me as their heavenly father. And the idea is that I'm your heavenly father. You, work, you live according to different principles. You believe in different things. You trust and put your dependence on me. Therefore, you don't have to worry. But if you don't know me, why are you acting? If you know me, why are you acting like you don't? Why are you fretting like somebody who doesn't even have God in their lives? What am I going to do about this bill? What am I going to do if they raise the taxes? What am I going to do if I have another child? What am I going to do if tuition is higher? If I have to change jobs? People that don't know God, that, that consumes their lives. But for people that do, no. Trusting in God is a heavenly thing. We are dependent upon Him. Six, your heavenly Father knows what you need. Verse 32. He knows you need them all. So don't be anxious. Why? Because I have a Father that knows... Everything I need. I'm not going to surprise him. Being out of diapers or whatever. He knows those things. He's got it covered. Knows it to a T. We need to, to learn to rest in that. And seven, God will supply everything you need to do his will and his righteousness. So it's more than just the material things. It's about God's will in our lives. You're never going to lack 
what you need to do God's will and to live righteously before Him. Those are the important things. Seek Him first. Don't seek the good things first. Seek God first. Then God takes the good things in His time. And then lastly, God does not overload any day with trouble. Have you ever had those days where you're absolutely certain it's more than I can bear? There's just no way in the world I'm going to get through it. Not today. This is even worse than yesterday. The truth of the matter is, it says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verse 34. So, contrary to our emotions and our feelings, God does not just pile it up on us and overload us. It's each day is allotted. Each day does have troubles. But it's not to take us down. So what are these eight reasons? They're God's gifts to us. Eight biblical reasons, good reasons, to not have to live enslaved to anxiety. And so it comes down to a decision and a choice. Who are we going to trust? What are we going to depend in? Can I wean myself off of the wrong things? Trust in the right person. Absolutely. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives us everything. You seek God first. That's the most important, the biggest priority. He needs to be on top. He needs to be on the throne of our hearts. And when things get turned upside down and we put the good things on the throne and God's down here to serve the good things, life's going to, you think it's hard now, it only gets worse. There's an order that God has. The order is this, God gets the glory. Anything short of that is wrong. Anything short of that, God's going to work to change. Whether it's through grace, whether it's through discipline, all of the above. So, let us submit ourselves. Be blessed by these words. That they they would help us to exalt God. Help us to edify the saints. May these words, these freeing words help us. May the evangelized, the lost be evangelized. And find themselves... In these words that set us free. Thank you God for this gift. And may he bless the preaching of his word this morning.